You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Uh, well and truly into the uh, summer break now uh, for MotoGP. So a pause on the on-track action for the time being, but still plenty to get stuck into off-track. On the show today, who's under pressure coming to the second half of this season? A bit of Moto E news, lots of your questions answered too, plus much, much more. The recording date is Monday the 4th of July. My name's Harry Benjamin. Joining me as usual, Crash MotoGP editor Pete McLean. Clarin and former Grand Prix rider and British champion Keith Hewin. Um, first of all, though, I've just come back, Keith, from the British Grand Prix. Uh, I know bringing up four wheels straight away is absolute sacrilege, isn't it? But I'm sorry, if you're a motorsport fan, I think you would have thoroughly enjoyed the uh, British Grand Prix this weekend that Formula One had to offer. Um, but I'm also going to be there in a few weeks' time for the MotoGP race as well, doing some bits in the fan zone. But on Thursday at Silverstone, there were 50,000 people there. There's no track action on the Thursday. Across the weekend, over 400,000 people. The stands were packed. The atmosphere was immense. And not to mention the, the music in the evening, the campsites. It was absolutely rammed. But I can't help but think that why does Formula One have that allure? And I imagine MotoGP, although it will be a big crowd when it comes to Silverstone in a few weeks' time, I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong, it will be on nearly the same level as the Formula One was. Well, I think you got you guys got lucky because it was probably one of the best British Grand Prix there's been in recent times. So Formula One, well done. I mean, I think that coverage was brilliant. I watched the whole lot of it because I am a bloody petrol head and I can't not watch some it as iconic as the British Grand Prix, even if it is Formula One. Um, I think the big issue, and I've spoken to the managing director of, of Silverstone about this only a week or so ago, regarding you know British riders, if we had British riders that were of the level of someone like Lewis Hamilton, I mean, he was going for his eighth you know, British Grand Prix win. I mean, uh, people turn up. It's amazing, isn't it? Brits are quite tribal. We are quite tribal still. In fact, sport is tribal. You know, you get on one side of a team, on one side of a of a of a man or a woman. In in many cases, it's a case of we we go there to to shout and holler for for our person, our team. And I think that that motorsport, <laughs> it's quite remarkable, really, that you shout for a man, but you're also shouting for a team. So you you've, you've got two bites of the cherry there to a certain extent, but. The reason why we don't have, you know, the same kind of crowds now is because we don't have a proven race winner in the premier class. Um, 
you know, Jack Doohan won the, the GP2 race this weekend. So Mick Doohan's son from MotoGP, five-time, you know, Mighty Mick's son, actually won a race this weekend as well. So there's, there's quite a lot of crossover there. A lot of people in the paddock, people in the paddock that will be seen in the MotoGP paddock in a few weeks' time as well because they appreciate great racing and we're sure to have it. Silverstone is a fantastic racetrack. I mean, most riders love the track because it's fast and it's flowing. You know, you don't get those kind of speeds on a lot of tracks nowadays. It's, it's not got chicanes, it's not got Mickey Mouse hairpins, rah, 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 rah. So Silverstone is a great racetrack. But I think the reason for the crowds, atmosphere, well, bigger the crowd, the more atmosphere you're going to get if it's being catered for properly. And when I was up there a couple of weeks ago, the atmosphere was there with the place empty. You know, you've got hundreds of scaffolders and riggers putting up stands. Stuart Pringle, MD, said that, that if he could have got more personnel on site prior, he would have put more grandstands up to sell. He couldn't get the level of labour that he needed to put the stuff up. As it was, he was having to rent people in from Holland to come and come and put stands up. So I think the Lewis Hamilton factor, and Hamilton has, has caught the mood. In fact, no, it's not just Hamilton. Lando Norris. Charles Leclerc, George Russell, all great personalities, young personalities. And Formula One, since Liberty took it over, have allowed social media. We've now, we now know these people. You know, you, you've got insight to it. Sky, as much as I have to say it, Sky TV, Sky F1 rather, do a brilliant job of bringing you those personalities. You see them in lights that you wouldn't see them in normally. So I think that, that Liberty... The broadcasters generally have done a great job in very few years of getting this back on track. You know, we've watched Formula One in the past. You didn't know the names. You didn't know the people. You didn't weren't interested in anybody. The racing was absolutely rubbish, as it generally is in comparison with a Moto3 race, for instance. Um, but here we are, you know, biggest sporting event I've seen at the, uh, the British Grand Prix for, for some time. You know, go back in the day when we didn't have grandstands and we only had terraces and we had mounds of earth to stand on. There's 120,000 people at trackside. When I was at, you know, racing in Grand Prix, 120,000 people there. You know, when I went round on the truck, 120,000 people screaming and hollering. You knew you were in a, 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 you know, a big deal. I think things have also become more of a festival. I mean, for the MotoGP side, you can go on Thursday. Of course you can go on Thursday. It's the, the Day of Champions. You know, you turn up for the Day of Champions, you do two things. You can get involved in what's going on at the track, and there's a bit going on, not a lot, but a bit, plenty for the charity side of things. And you can feel good about yourself by bidding on uh, whatever it might be up on the stage. So, you know, Day of Champions is, is an important part of the MotoGP calendar. And then you've got three days of free practice, qualifying, and, and, and race day. It's not as big till we get more people in, but, and me and Pete have been talking about this before we, we came on air, you know, they're still quite clever, Dorna, aren't they? They're quite clever. I'm, I'm wondering what the collaboration is between them and the American racing team at the moment. Hang on, American racing team, yet we've just hired a Brit as a wild card. Um, so we've got Rory Skinner, 20 years old still only, Red Bull Rookies winner, British Talent Cup Series winner, you know, Super Sport um, Championship winner by a mile here in the UK, up there in the BSB Championship, British Superbike Championship at the moment, still only 20 years old, gets his chance in Moto2 for two races as well, not just at the British Grand Prix, obviously the Austrian as well, the Red Bull ring. You know, great Turns out the American racing team manage him personally. So they're trying to find him a place on the Mother 2 grid. And because they haven't been able to, they've stuck him in their team. But it still seems like, to me, Pete, I mean, being the old dyed-in-the-wall cynic like I am, that, that, that a bit of, it feels like a, a hand of Dorner is here somewhere for, for, for a British rider to be, to be promoting the British Grand Prix just that level higher 
getting back to your answer, your question, Harry, so that we get even more fans in there because we've got another chance of a British rider. And don't forget what Jake Dixon did. This is exactly how Jake Dixon got himself into Moto2 and became the man that he is as well. He was a BSB rider, good one, and uh, got a wild card at the British Grand Prix and the, uh, I think the next round. I think he got two wild cards that year. And before you know where he is, he's in Grand Prix. Now he's a potential winner in Grand Prix. Did no I answer any no, question, or did I just randomly go on? <laughs> we, we saw the French Grand Prix this year, didn't we? Fabio Quattararo, what a home hero does to the crowd. So I think just to underline that, you know. And at the same time, we saw Mugello without their big home hero for the first time in uh, in 20 years, without Valentino Rossi, and it was one of the most disappointing crowds of the season. So there's, there's, there's clearly a link, and, and, and the people running the sports are aware of that, I'm sure, and as, as Keith says, there's... There's good reasons why they're looking for the next guy. Cal, Cal carried the uh, you know the hopes for the Brits, didn't he, for a lot of years? And there's no doubt that he brought a lot of people into Silverstone. But yeah, there's no no Brits on the grid at the moment. So you know, there's going to be a lot of focus though on Moto Two, as you say. Jake Dixon, I mean, he he'll be up there. I mean, could he get his first win? You know, there's there's, there's a lot of reason to be optimistic for the future. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's to hear those crowd figures. I mean, four hundred thousand fans, and I think it, it also happened at Cota. I think for the F1 as well, didn't it? I think that was also a a similar crowd level. I mean, those, that's huge numbers. So, uh, yeah, let's hope MotoGP. I mean, for MotoGP, about two hundred and fifty thousand is a, is a big weekend crowd, isn't it? That's some of the most popular events. That's the sort of numbers you're looking at. So, yeah, four hundred thousand. That's that's huge. But you've got to cope with that kind of home pressure as well. And the other side, the downside to that is that there is so much extra pressure. And this is another reason why the Hamiltons, Lando, Norris, Russell, you know, et al. do so well. They are in demand. Every corporate event, every single thing for their team, every single thing personally, their family turn up, their friends turn up. It's the same for MotoGP, exactly the same sketch. You know, I, I think Lando Norris, who is famously a Valentino Rossi fan, which I tend to like about Lando as well, is that um, he reckoned three tenths. I think it's probably a bit optimistic giving you three tenths, but home support gives you three tenths. I heard him say it, and I remember thinking, blimey. Um, again, I think he was joking, but some riders, it does give that extra psychological list, uh, lift. Others choke. You know, it can go two ways. You know, you can find yourself overriding. And again, with a bike, I don't know whether it's the same with a car. It must be, I would think. But, you know, when you ride a little tense, a little stiff, a little... You know, you override, you go slower. You know, it's probably the same in an F1 car or any any car or bike. But the second you stiffen up, second you're you feel that pressure, you look to the sides, you see the size of the crowd, you see, you know, the support you're getting. You know, you don't want to let anybody down, that's for sure. But overriding or riding tight um, definitely is detrimental to a to a, a good finish. It's a lot of pressure, isn't it, on on these riders? You mentioned, you know, it, the key might be having a a British rider on the grid, APW underscore 481, rolls off the tongue. Um, do you think someone like Scott Redding could rejoin MotoGP again? Or are we, we can't look backwards. It's all about looking for a, a new, young, undiscovered talent now. I think Scott Redding is where he is now. I think that, you know, we're going to go through that transition period, aren't we? Because this 18-year-old age um, limit pops in next year. So straight away, it's going to ban a load of kids from coming up into MotoGP, even if they are good enough to come up into MotoGP. They're going to be hanging around in the 
Spanish Championship, the Italian Championship, wherever they feel like going. So it's going to add a dynamic to other championships around the world, I think, as well, because they're going to have to look at where else can I go? What else can I do? You know, languishing for another two years if you're a 16-year-old and you were expecting to come up into, into Moto3, that's a real problem for, for, for them and personally and for management. Now, for the Brits, as I've said so many times, because we mature a little later here, um, as in financially and in opportunity, uh, I think that 18-year-old lower age limit is, is brilliant. In fact, I mean, there's, there's been, you know, some riders have turned around and said it should be higher for MotoGP. Um, and I don't think it's a bad argument, to be frank with you, um, for everything to be dialed out, your education and your other parts of your life, and you've, you've had a chance to live a little um, before you're thrust into the arena that is Moto3, Moto2, MotoGP. I think it's very hard for, you know, just we're already looking at next year and thinking that there might not be any rookies. I mean, potentially Ayagura, but that might be it. You know, we're losing two seats off the grid. So, you know, for anyone to come in is going to be difficult. And so for Scott to come back, also Scott's a bigger guy. You know, he knows how hard it is dealing with having a bigger size on these bikes. Um, some of our listeners might have seen the, the interview went up today with Daniel Petrucci, who was another guy who always struggled. And for, coming back to T- Keith's uh, point three of a second, now Petrucci reckons that's sort of what he was losing on the straights, just to put that in perspective. So yeah, he would have needed the fan power just to sort of make up for, for his bigger size. And, and Scott was another guy's teammate to Petrucci at, at one time at Pramac, and he suffered from the same thing. And I think he's he's much happier now at Superbike. It's not such a a big deal there and you can be competitive as a bigger rider so i think for scott to come back in the future he basically need to win the world superbike championship i think that would be his his sort of best route to win it with a factory that has a motor gp presence and then that would be the next step but i think it's uh, yeah i think scott's he's, he's done a lot of hard years in motor gp he's, he's enjoying winning um and uh, i know this year with bmw has not been so easy but you know i think he's you know he, he's in a happier place now i think and so yeah, it's, it's not easy to come back to MotoGP once you leave it. No, not at all. Well, well uh, I mean, you could, it's just... you could flesh that out a little bit, Harry. You could flesh it out a little bit. We, I know your question's coming up because I read some of them this morning when they came in on the Twitter feed. So I, <laughs> I think I know what you've got in front of you there. You know, the one about Honda, you know, what happens if Mark Marquez doesn't come back? You know, who are they going to replace? <laughs> yeah. It was a shame they ever let Jonathan Ray go. <laughs> there's, there's always... There are always these top guys that are sort of that have moved over to other series. You know, will they attempt the likes of Razgadioglu? You know, like it, it, it's a question of where contracts are at the time that this this becomes available and when when they finally pull the pin. You know, hopefully um, that won't be the case. Well, I mean, you, you've said the name now, haven't you, Mark Marquez? And, and there was a question that came in there. And Pete, there was an update, wasn't there, uh, since we have last uh, spoken. What is the update with uh, Marquez at the moment? Yeah, so he sort of released this blog post on the, the Repsol website, going into quite a lot of detail just on the background to the operation, basically saying that, you know, only those really close to him knew how much he was struggling, which is no surprise, because we all know that Mark keeps his sort of difficulties to himself but yeah he kind of kept a lid on things of just how much trouble he was in and and at the same time he was going for these checks and looking for options and then finally gets the go ahead to have this surgery i did actually hear that you know the figure given was 30 degrees wasn't it that they kind of it sounds like they basically chopped the bone turned it 30 degrees from what i hear that was actually being a bit it was actually a bit more than that it was more like 33 34 so people might think that they're exaggerating quite the opposite it was actually so that's how out of line the bone had become and now it's been sort of 
fixed back into its new place. But so, you know, another big operation on this arm. And as you say, Harry, in terms of the future, Mark again made clear in this blog post that without doing this surgery, he might continue for another one or two years. Now, that might not sound like much, but his contract is for two years. So Mark was effectively saying that, you know, he would leave his contract early after maybe one year if he didn't have this surgery. Now, you know, for someone like Mark, who never gives up, who never wants to quit, you know, that's a that's a big statement. And it just underlines how much he was struggling. I, I also heard that uh, actually, if you looked at the handlebar grips on Mark's bike at the end of the race, the left hand side destroyed the right hand side like new. And, you know, it just underlines how much effort was going on on the other side, on the left hand side to compensate for this problem with the right. And, uh, you know, and that's why he was also starting to get new problems on the left hand side because he was overcompensating. So, yeah, he's, you know, as far as where he is now, he's had the first medical check. He's, he's not in any pain. Obviously, the first check, you've got to imagine the main priority would have been infection. After what happened previously, they would have been, you know, looking for any signs of any infection. All clear on that. So, you know, that's that's the first big big tick as far as his recovery. Let's hope that there's no infection this time. And, uh, you know, there's lots of pictures of him on social media, isn't there? He's doing a bit of light exercise, that kind of thing. Um, we'll have to wait and see. He said he's waiting for this x-ray. I think it's a six-week x-ray. And that will kind of show how well the bone is healing. And then you'll have an idea of when he can come back. You keep hearing this figure of kind of the Mizano test of sort of September time, because that's the first chance to work on next year's bike. He's missed these chances in the last two years. Uh, to work on the bike, let's say, for the following year. And we've seen that, you know, he's turned up at testing and it hasn't quite been what he's wanted. So I think it'd be pretty important for him to turn up this time at Mizano and then Valencia. And of course, at Valencia, he will have a new teammate. Uh, we think it'll be Juan Mir almost certainly. But uh, yeah, I think it'll be important for, uh, for Mark to just stamp his authority on this bike right from the start and make sure the bike is as he needs it. He's not in the situation that he has been prior to pulling out of this year where clearly he was trying to adapt to the bike, but fundamentally it wasn't sort of the bike that, that he needs. Clearly hasn't lost his uh, sense of humour either. I think across social media, he's also been commenting on uh, the other riders' Instagram posts. I think Alex Rins, one of them, being like, why are you always posting photos that always have an LCR Honda in them? And then giving, <laughs> uh, giving a little, hmm, what's going on there? So uh, clearly hasn't uh, lost that either. Um, talking of statements actually we we should also touch early doors on uh, what's come out uh, from Lynn Jarvis this was a little bit ago now but I think it's worth uh, bringing up again on the uh, Fabio Quattararo uh, penalty he has to do a long lap round at Silverstone after uh, being uh, well being a bit bit naughty last time around but uh, debate around that but uh, Keith I'll come to you in a minute but Pete just reiterate what the uh, statement was because it sounds like he was properly threatening to take this to almost the highest level you can at the court of arbitration yeah so obviously after the race we had let's say the normal team press release and Massimo Merigali the, the team manager made clear that you know they didn't feel the penalty was fair then we had Quattararo posting on Instagram, you know, this kind of, well, you know, I'm not going to overtake again kind of thing, which obviously pinches salt and a bit emotional. But then on the Tuesday, we have this official statement. It was titled as an official statement from Lynn Jarvis, who's the managing director of Yamaha Motor Racing, pretty much as high up as you can get European-wise in the Yamaha racing organization. Now, you know, Lynn is not someone who uses emotive language, who loses, you know, he's very careful about what he says, very controlled about what he says, but really he kind of fired a torpedo at the, at the FIM stewards. I mean, speaking about inequality, they were disappointed with these, the inequality of the penalties, the inconsistency. 
Uh, they felt like uh, subjective standards, you know, these kind of things. I mean, uh, yeah, quite strong. Dog's words. not happy either. The the dog was furious about it, as you can tell. He's a big Quattrara <laughs> fan, I think. Um, and uh, and yes, yeah, so just just adding to this whole, you know, riders being ang- angry with penalties, you know, big surprise. But but now it's it's actually escalating a bit into senior, the very senior team management getting involved. And I don't know. I mean, whether we're going to see some sort of response from race direction, perhaps not. Sorry, the FIM stewards, perhaps not publicly, but. Clearly, there's some sort of you know communication issue here where they, they they don't quite understand why certain penalties are being applied and they need to thrash it out a bit. I, I can't remember quite when we've had a situation like this where it's been so sort of widely criticised in this way. Riders will always criticise it. They'll, ne- they'll never like getting a penalty, but once it starts going into team management, I think you sort of have to address it a bit, don't you? And and the big problem here is that you know after Sepang 2015, that sort of season. They wanted to go to getting penalties done in the race, didn't they? They didn't want them dragging over to the following race. Well, here we are in exactly the same situation. The penalty decision was made two hours after the race, and it's dragging on to a race that will take place in a month's time. So, you know, that was what we hoped would end by creating this stewards panel, that that the, the decisions could be taken during the race, and it would be done and dusted. And then you draw a line under it, and you go to the next event. And unfortunately, this one's going to drag on, isn't it? And, you know, Quattro is going to turn up on Thursday at Silverstone, and he's going to be asked about it, and then Friday, and then Saturday, and everything else. So, yeah, it's I don't quite know why the decision wasn't taken in the race. Obviously, Quattararo did retire from the race. He was only he went on for another fifteen minutes after the incident itself, didn't he? So maybe there wasn't time, but that would have been ideal. You know, if they could have given the penalty then, even if it's a long lap and he didn't finish the race, well, who cares? They they would have made the point that they felt it was something to be punished. As it is, it kind of feels like almost a double punishment because he lost a load of points, a load of places, and now he's going to have to do his penalty at Silverstone as well. So, yeah, coming back to the MR statement, just finally, they mentioned three incidents with other riders that they said had resulted in riders falling or being injured and were not punished. Now, you know, that's where they see the inconsistency. Alasia, of course, didn't fall down. Um, You know, he wasn't injured in any way but still Quattrari got punished. So, yeah, it, it keeps running. Let's see where this is going to end. But but it seems like there needs to be, you know, the, the teams and maybe the FIM stewards need to sit down and just sort of thrash out common ground on the, on the penalty situation. Dirty laundry in public, never a nice thing. <laughs> and I think that we've got to a situation now with Lynn Jarvis getting involved in this manner. He's obviously frustrated. Um, there's a certain amount of politics being played at this. There's a lot more going on underneath the surface than we're ever going to know about, pushing and shoving. It annoys me greatly that they've been all going on about it. It's all very well Lynn Jarvis making the point that he's making. It may or may not be valid. In my view, the situation with Quattararo, he came from a little further back. He was pushing really hard to make the pass. It was a bigger mistake than the likes of Nakagami and one or two of the others. The subtlety mustn't be lost but also you mustn't lose sight of the politics behind it and the reasoning behind the kerfuffle that we're seeing in public now you know Lynn Jarvis if that penalty had been as you said quite rightly say Pete if it had been awarded in the race there's no appeal to that you are going to do a long lap penalty the fact that he's been carried forward into the next race and as far as I'm aware there's no real appeal real appeal as far as the court of arbitration for sports concerned either i think that that you know they're pretty much done with this but the fact that we're washing our laundry in public is never a good thing i can't understand why the 
Friday night rider safety session, this can be discussed. It can be carried forward into the manufacturer's discussion that they have as well together as all the teams come together to talk. They don't involve Erta in it. They don't get Dorna. These are intellectually quite clever people. These are not idiots. You know, we're dealing with, with high-powered, smart people. And here we are having a mudslinging session in public, blaming the scapegoat that is Freddie Spencer, who is a legend, and I will never, ever disrespect Freddie Spencer. His opinion is as valid as anybody else's, in my view, even if he might err slightly on the causal rather than the, as you put it, the, the consequences, Pete. You know, the cause of the accident, was that great enough to deserve a penalty? If you look at the consequences of the accident, no, it wasn't. But the cause of it was, subtly, Quattararo was in hotter than Nakagami back a little while ago. I can't remember the other ones he was talking about as accurately without going back over the tapes. And to be honest, I can't be asked with it because it's just going on too long and driving us all mad. Why we need to be washing our laundry in, in public, why these guys aren't dealing with it, if they're not happy with the way that the the uh, race stewards are operating, then why are they not dealing with that behind the scenes in the correct manner? Why are they unable to get a handle on the three guys that are, that are our race stewards? If they're not good enough, then they should get shot of them. Michael Massey made that call that he made that you know cost Lewis Hamilton a championship, gave Verstappen a bloody championship, whatever you want to say about his decision. Um, the fact was, quietly and behind the scenes, they dealt with it, moved into one side, and it was sorted. Something like that needs sorting here. But then you get back to the fundamental problem. Racing is racing. Do you turn around and say, okay, you can ram it up the inside and knock people about and barge into people without any penalty? There will always have to be a penalty. Someone will have to make a decision. This is not like, you know, it's not like the, the, the green paint situation where you've got a sensor out there, you go over it, three times and you get a warning five times you get a you know get a get a penalty it's it's a situation where it's an opinion and it's always going to be an opinion we can't get it covered as clearly from all angles to to scientifically analyze you know the data from the bike compared with the pictures we're seeing we'd be there for a month trying to work it all out you know we'd be getting a decision on assen you know three grand prix down the road when they'd looked at every single scientific angle of it and had the data from the, you know did he break in the same place that he broke the, 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 the lap before? Or was he later? You know, these are all things that are on the data. They can look at it. It's all there. You know, but did they? Probably not, is the fact of the matter is. It was clear that Quattararo came in hot, was a little wide, took out a Spargo. Should he have got a penalty for that? Probably, is my opinion. What's my opinion? absolutely worthless just like everybody else's who's commentating on this at the moment it's a situation where the call was made by race direction don't like the race direction call you need to change race direction if that's not working for the teams the riders and everybody else and i agree that that freddie spencer's position has become untenable now and if i was freddie spencer i would resign just on principle of the fact is that i don't appear to have the trust of the riders now or the teams and once the big guns come out like lynn jarvis and start lobbing dirty great big grenades into it um you're done for really but let me have one more thing nobody wants that job when they got freddie spencer 
I knew who the candidates were before and nobody wanted to do it. Nobody still wants to do it. You know, you've got a situation here where that job is available. If someone stands up and, you know, if you've got three credible men and they come rolling into, into, the, into the, the, the whole situation, that, you know, the job is there to be done. Freddie Spencer is all very well, as I say, using him as a scapegoat, which he is, in my view. You know, he's the man. He shouldn't even have a bloody name to it half the time. It's the, 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 it should be the decision of the stewards, not Freddie Spencer. It's, it's, it's kind of like he's the guy that we all love to hate for the decision that's been made by three men. And widen it out by Dorna, by Erta, by giving the race direction the powers that they have to make that decision. You know, it's a greater thing than Freddie Spencer. And that's what annoys me when people fire them off at Freddie. You know, Freddie is an analytical, he's a good guy. He's not biased in any way, shape or form. He's doing the job as best he can, given the, the, the situation that he finds himself in. And he makes a call. You know, and his call was that Quattararo overstepped the mark by enough to deserve a long lap penalty. He made the call with Nakagami that Nakagami made up lots of spaces off the grid by a good launch, but when he was at the corner, when he came into the corner, he was breaking in the same place as everyone else, but still lost the front. Clearly still a mistake, but there was no, you know, overstretch, if you like, by Nakagami when he was at the corner. Anyone could have lost the front at that particular point in that particular circumstance, is how Freddie read it. You know, impossible task. You know, poison chalice. Have a sip if you fancy it. Well, Keith, what's your calendar like these days? You got time for it? Uh, <laughs> mate, if they paid me bloody 20 times what Freddie's getting, I wouldn't be doing that job. You know, I think that, that, that I don't think he has the, I don't think he has the tools to, to do the job in the manner that it's now demanded of. I think that it, you need to be able to analyse exactly, you know, did Freddie, did uh, Quattararo squeeze that break in the same place as he had done before? You want to have a look at all the data, take an average of it and decide whether he took a lunge at it. Looked to me like he saw a bit of a gap and Alicia Spargo. And the other thing we talked about before, we've, we've discussed it already. He underestimated how good uh, Spargo was. I think that, that everyone's underestimating at the moment how good Alicia Spargo is. Alicia Spargo might have been right on the bloody limit going into this, into that distrib and into that turn five. Um, and therefore, trying to get underneath him was going to create a problem. And that's the problem that Quattararo had. He had to, you know, he was late on the brakes and he had to squeeze him a bit harder because Alicia was dropping down into the corner. Uh, if you underestimate the guy you're trying to outbreak and he's already on the limit, you're, you're over the limit trying to outbreak him. And that's what happened. You know, it's a situation where you've got, you've got to say as much to Alicia Spargo's credit as it is to, to Quattararo's downfall. And I think they all recognise that. Alicia's no pushover anymore. But, like, you know, you might have been able to do that, you know, Alicia, you know, Mark 1. But Alicia Mark 2, he's, he's, you know, a world championship contender and he's the Aprilia's working well and so is he. Well, more questions than answers i think uh for the stewards <laughs> to have to uh, uh answer as ever um your question well, no, i don't though, think they've been coming in. I don't, I, I, no i don't think it is the stewards that have to answer it it's not the stewards that have to answer it i mean they're all dead in the water it's about the sport answering it. it's about what they are going to do to okay. either replace the stewards they've got or replace the system of of, of penalties that they've got that's the the way that they are going to have to do this. It's not about the stewards anymore. That's done and dusted. 
you know, I think Freddie's, you know, Freddie probably be Freddie's last year as a steward. Um, and, and to be frank, I think you'd be bloody happy to be out of there. I mean, you imagine the flack he's getting and the sleepless nights he's having over the whole thing. Horrendous personal insults to a guy that's used to adulation in the past. It's horrendous, absolutely horrendous and unjustified in my viewing. You know, I think that, that Freddie Spencer is a good guy doing a job that he thinks to the best of his ability. Clearly, you know, some riders are unhappy with him. Some of the calls he's made, they don't like. Riders are never happy. They're never happy with, are we going to race in the rain or are we not going to race in the rain? That's a load of shout. You know, that's got nothing to do with the stewards. That's got something to do with, un, you know, the rest of the, the management. You know, you know, I remember Scott Redding said, well, let's get on with it at Silverstone when it was raining and everyone else was bitching about not going out there. You know, it, it's, it's a situation that once it becomes inflamed and you lose the respect of the of the of, 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 of proportion, it, becomes, it becomes viral. You know, that's the other thing with social media. Once it becomes viral, then you get this campaign against an individual or something along those lines. And these are all modern day situations that we're all having to deal with. We're all having to get used to. And and Freddie Spencer is is you know, you wouldn't want to look at your bloody Twitter feed or or whatever it is for the for the, the amount of insults and you know stuff he's getting at the moment. He's now nowhere near as popular as Fabio Quattararo. Fabio Quattararo is going to have millions of followers. Freddie Spencer is going to have half a dozen in comparison. So therefore. The, the weight of opinion is against Freddie Spencer all the time. It's like a big bully situation. Yeah, correct the correct the problem. I agree. If there is a problem with race direction, correct it. But it's bigger than three blokes sitting in an office at a racetrack. It's got to be about Dorna, Erta, the teams have got to come up with a system. If they're unhappy with the one they've got, they've got to come up with a better system, not just bitch about the one they've got, in my view. All right, then. Let's leave that there because I feel like we could talk about that for about an hour and a half. Um, I was going to bring up the idea that Formula One obviously bringing in uh, alternating race directors. Maybe that's something MotoGP might start to think about. But you're saying it's bigger no, than I think just that's worse. sat in the office. That's much worse. Do you worse. think? Yeah, because you lose consistency. The problem is you need consistency. But there's never consistency anyway. It's, that's the main well, argument that most people exactly have. Exactly the main argument. Exactly that. But you're going to lose even more consistency. And we've been down this road where we've had different direction at different racetracks. The reason why we have travelling stewards and travelling officials is to try and make sure that it's consistent. I agree the system is not great, but how are we going to fix it? How how is Dorna Erta, the teams, going to come up with a better system? You can't just shout from the terraces that that ain't right. It has to be politically something that you're going to change in a positive way. You know, and I disagree with people lambasting Freddie Spencer for a decision he's made as race director. In fact, he hasn't just made it. There's three of them that made it. He's the one. The other two are probably ducking behind their desks, hoping they're anonymous enough not to actually get the kind of crap that, that Spencer gets. But being the big name, he's copping the lot. Um, yeah, okay, it's inconsistent. Okay, what do we do about it? Let's get it changed. All right, then. Let's get it changed. Keith's on a mission there. Your questions, lots of them coming in. Lots and lots and lots of them coming in. Um, And this is a nice question, actually, from uh, Gala37. And uh, considering we talk about the American racing team right at the start of this show, of course, bringing in a Brit. um, But Gala wants to know thoughts on American riders. In the 80s and 90s, they were the benchmark in recent times that has disappeared 
Are there any potential Grand Prix class winners in the current Moto2 trio? Or is there someone else to keep an eye on, perhaps? So uh, looking at the American riders. Well, I mean, having had quite a lot of time with (laughs) Kevin, Wayne Rainey and co at the Festival of Speed, uh, you know, you've got to say Moto America, which Wayne Rainey is the head of, um, he's obviously trying to get the domestic series back up to speed so that they can start shipping their guys across. I mean, things have changed hugely, haven't they? I mean, uh, you know, we've, it's not the same as it was back in the early seventies. You Kenny Roberts. And I, I actually had a bloody dinner with Kenny the other night as well. I mean, if you sat with him, it's enlightening to say the least. He's so far in the past in the way of thinking, um, you know, our modern day of, of dealing with stuff is so completely different to how it was back in the 70s, obviously. Um, but it's kind of at the end of the day, it's catching the imagination. It's, it's catching that wave almost, isn't it, of enthusiasm towards it. We talked about, you know, Dorna being involved in Jake Dixon as a wild card, Jeremy McWilliams before him as a, as a, as a motorbike racer that, you know, Dorna weighed in quite heavily with his fund, funding for his team to make sure he was on the grid. You know, it's a, it's a global marketplace that Dorna are trying to, I, I struggle to say the word manipulate, but that's exactly what it is, in that they are trying to make sure that each marketplace has suitable riders in the, uh, in the, the Grand Prix setup uh, and on the Grand Prix ladder. You know, Wayne Rainey is head of Moto America. They've given us Cameron Bobier. You know, I, I never expected Cameron Bobier to come across and be as quick as he's been. I, I genuinely didn't think he'd be. He's older, 28 years old, I think, when he came across. And I never expected him to be quite as good as he turned out to be. Now, there might be one or two more gems over there. But you tend to find that European riders at the moment are riding on Grand Prix tracks. You know, in Moto America, they're riding on, you know, potentially nowhere near as or near, nowhere near as necessary safe racetracks. Great racing, great interest, great you know spectator spectacles. But um, it's not like Italy or Spain or even you know even the UK have got two Grand Prix homologated tracks really in Donington and and uh, and Silverstone. So you've you've got a situation where the training ground is quite dilapidated and the pool of riders coming through is quite small in America at the moment. Same in Australia. You know, you, you only have to have a look at Australia. Australia was a dominant force once upon a time. That's drifted away. You know, modern motorbike racing has, has changed face slightly. Oh. Just to back up what Keith's saying about the tracks, that's also what Petrucci said when I asked him, you know, what do you think about Moto America and, and trying to get riders over to Europe? And he said, you know, the trouble is that a lot of these tracks are, are basically car tracks. And, and, you know, they're bumpy. It's, it's, like, it's like racing on the streets. He said, in some ways, he compared it to the Italian Championship. But he said, in the Italian Championship, what they do is they go to sort of the same track several times. And he thinks that's actually better than trying to do, you know, a variety of tracks, some of which are just you know, not suitable to, let's say, top-level motorcycle racing. So there's two different approaches, obviously. Moto America is trying to get to as many places as possible and spread the word and build the sport. But from the rider development point of view, you know, they need to be on 
the highest standard of tracks where for example the, the the you know the track surface is consistent the grip level is consistent so the riders learn how to push to the absolute limit uh, and Pichucci was saying that some of these some of these tracks you know the, the, the car tracks in quote marks if you like that are quite sort of battered and and, and you know potmarked it, it might look great racing but he said it doesn't really teach you how to ride on the limit when you come over to Europe you've also got the age limit thing as well which as Keith has mentioned it might be a good thing this raising the age limit traditionally so sort of the, the the non-european riders have, have, have suffered more haven't they from from this young age limit all the mini bike tracks that they have in europe where guys guys kids can jump on bikes at sort of four and five years old that's sort of been lacking in in sort of the you know west western parts of europe or in america and, and uh, australia so yeah a combination of things and as Keith says you know cameron bobby it's so close to the podium i mean you just think if he could just get that podium under his belt. What what could he do? Because he's been he's been there or thereabouts, and uh, we saw it as some. Fortunately, it slipped away again. But he's got the speed. Joe Roberts, of course, has won a race. It was okay that race that uh, you know a lot of the leaders didn't start because of the chaos and with the rain in the first one. But you know, there's there's guys there that are just bubbling under the surface, and uh, you know if they can get that consistency, that there's probably an equal chance of an American getting into MotoGP as a Brit at the moment, you would say, really. I mean, I think if you look at the, you know, the Brits have got Jake Dixon and, uh, you know, say Rory Skinner on the horizon, you've got Joe Roberts, you've got Cameron Bobia. America and the UK are in a kind of a similar situation where there's, there's guys that potentially could make that step, but at the moment, there's still guys that are quicker than them in Moto2, and that means it's a, it's a tough call for the MotoGP teams to pick them. You've got to really, to turn heads, you've got to really you know, be a multiple winner in Moto2 at least, haven't you, and ideally be the champion. Kenny Roberts, not Rogers, Roberts, um, you bring him up, Keith, and Todd has said, and this is a, a nice segue, I think, Go uh, he said at Goodwood, he doesn't understand why in MotoGP the racing's so good, but one person can win one race one weekend, but then that same person can be 17th the next. Why is that happening? It's already hard enough for rookies to, to break into MotoGP and then perform well. But when this is happening to even the most experienced and the best riders, why is it happening? Is it the bike, the track? Is it ties? Is it a mental state? What's the deal? It's all of them. I mean, that's the great thing about MotoGP as it is now. I mean, it's a, you know, rules-wise, Dorna have slowly but surely chipped away at getting this equality situation done. The last bastion of that was really the electronics, the ECU and the inertial platform, the two brains of the bike, if you like. Um, once they've got to the, the spec version of that, that now all the teams have to run rather than running their own, um, it, it meant that the playing field is now pretty flat. Um, all of the bikes, even it's the remarkable thing about our MotoGP rules, so many different configurations of chassis and motor, and yet we're all within, you know, the whole bloody field can be within a second of each other in, 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 in through practice. It's, it's remarkable. And it's, a, you know, you've got to say that it's, I mean, <laughs> of course, it does create problems through the three classes, Moto3, Moto2, MotoGP. When the racing is so close, when you get a disaster in the middle of it, of course, it takes out several riders. And so the safety issue is, is that nobody's spread out. So there's not as much room to, to, to maneuver in those situations. So the, the penalty of being so successful is that. But the fact is that, that you know, tyres, 
So tyres on a different configuration of motorbike might work fractionally better for some on one track and fractionally better for another on another track. Um, you know, the performance of a bike, you know, Yamaha versus Ducati, although Ducati is better at turning now, mid-corner speed and the like is, is miles better than it's, than it's ever been. So the Ducati is working well, but the Yamaha has always been a little bit better in the, in the middle of the turn. It turns better and, and he's a little slower in a straight line. So you've got these things that balance out over the entirety of a lap. Um, and that's why they're all so close. And that's why we have so many differentials in. And then you come to the mental state. Of course, that is an issue as well, depending on the track you're at. And, and we've, we've already touched on it. British Grand Prix, you know, home Grand Prix, you know, win or choke is, is, the, is the two ways it can go. It can be overawing because of, of, of the fact you're at your home Grand Prix or it can lift you to something spectacular. Um, you know, you've mentioned Petrucci many times already, Pete. And, you know, Petrucci at Mugello was something just a little bit special. You know, it's, it's one of those situations where I love it the way it is. The problem we've got at the moment for me is that MotoGP, with, with the technology the way it's gone, has actually probably given us slightly worse racing than we've had in previous years in that the aero and so on is 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 created a situation where it's much more difficult to do some of the things that would be normal in a motorbike race so kind of they'll be looking at that i mean i think you know we've we've got some changes coming up next year anyway and the the ride height adjusters and stuff like that they're going to get banned for 2023 and all i can say is thank god for that um because it hasn't really brought us anything much and what it's done is it's brought us closer to difficulties in entry speeds into corners as soon as you in, increase velocity in certain parts of certain tracks you end up with a track that's out of date and not got enough room to run off if somebody's approaching a corner and can now get into the corner a lot deeper and a lot faster if that lot lets go you end up reaching the barrier where in the past it would let go 10 yards earlier and wouldn't reach the barrier and that's the, that's the simplicity of it but of course it does become an issue for, for MotoGP organizers at some tracks you know you can't a lot of tracks naturally widen the barrier it's uh, it takes a hell of a lot of planning and a hell of a lot of uh, money to, to to achieve that sometimes so you know by dropping the shape shifter you may you might end up with a bike that can't get out of a corner quite as sharp as it perhaps will do when it sits down and goes down the straight like a drag bike when it's delivering 300 horsepower to the to the rear wheel likewise when you're coming into a into a corner you know it's it's, it's it changes the way the bike reacts on the way in so you're going to be a little slower perhaps on the way in yeah okay you can change tires you can give tires a little less grip you could ask michelin to give us something with a, a little less grip but you kind of straight away then you, you you're kind of falsifying the reality of what we're all trying to achieve in a in a prototype sport you know you know we're, we're trying to get excellence out of what we're doing um, we're going to see things change naturally over the next few years anyway with the fuels that we use which with a bit of luck, we'll just knock the edge off some of these bikes. So therefore, you know, you might be okay to run some other kind of development because the bikes aren't quite as sharp in a straight line anymore. You know, we've, we've kind of reached a pinnacle here at the moment, I think. Uh, I think that, you know, tracks, you know, quite a lot of Grand Prix tracks, suddenly people are scratching their head and thinking, well, that ain't quite as safe as we thought it was five years ago, um, just because of the speeds these bikes are pulling in the middle of the corner or the way into a corner. All of that will be changing naturally over the next few years. MotoGP are, are, are thrusting towards a, a um, sustainable fueling type situation as opposed to going electric. I know you want to go there, Ari. I can feel it. <laughs> but it's, you know, some people are, 
pushing more and more electric wise. Ducati obviously have now got involved with the Moto2 project next year. We'll see where it all goes. I just feel that the, the, the kind of propulsion systems, have, have, we've not settled on any one thing yet. Okay, publicly we seem to have settled on plugging our cars into the wall. But I just don't think that's finished yet. I think that we've got a lot more development going on in racing. And that's as it should be. That's what racing is for, is to develop systems, to develop something that's going to benefit the rest of us in some way into the future. Hopefully MotoGP's way is the right way. Well, speaking of the future, and we all know MotoGP is going electric imminently, don't we? Uh, and uh, <laughs> 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 maybe not quite, oh, uh, but <laughs> look on your face. Uh, Moto E, Pete, um, we'll, we'll end with a bit of Moto E chat, I think, uh, just because we never talk about it really, let's be honest. But there is a little bit of news, uh, as Keith alludes to. Ducati obviously taking over uh, supply of Moto E from uh, from Energica with the uh, 2023 uh, races uh, being built. Um, and a bit of news about that. They're going to be lighter, but they're, they're, still, they're still heavy. So just a bit, bit of a lighter, heavier, heavier, lighter, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, it, it's the glass half full or half empty thing, isn't it? Do you look at the weight saving or do you look at what the, what the weight will still be? So they, they managed to knock off about 35 kilograms from what the bikes are at the moment. So that's that's a big saving. And it seems like it's it's 12 kilograms under the weight, the target weight that Dorna gave them. So Dorna obviously recognised that the these things being as heavy as they are is, is an issue. Now, the part uses it's still, I think, 225 kilograms. Now, to put that into perspective, a MotoGP bike is 157 kilograms. So that's the difference. Now, and if you, you know those suitcases you take on the plane, the big suitcases, they're normally 20 kilograms, aren't they? Because that's normally your limit. So if you've got a MotoGP bike, you put a suitcase, a suitcase, and another suitcase, you'd be almost as heavy as a Moto E bike, if, just to give people an idea. Now, I, th I think this is really, it was, it, this weight figure is interesting because Ducati, obviously their history in racing, you know, if anyone could build a lightweight electric bike that performs well, it's Ducati. And I think this shows that with the current levels of electric technology, this is about the best that you can do. And Ducati made clear that they favored the weight side of things. You know, they went, they could have gone for more power. They've chosen, they've, they kept the power at about 150 horsepower, which is what the, the Energica bikes have. They went for the weight saving. But, you know, this shows you that really, I think this is about the best you can do. And it's still a long way off. I know Moto E is not a Grand Prix class, but it's a long way off the three Grand Prix classes in terms of weight. And lightweight really is the thing, isn't it? For, for a Grand Prix class, two or four wheels, it, it's, it's, it's the weight, it's the lightweight that makes them special. So, yeah, as Keith says, maybe this shows that it's a bit early for this, to, you know, for this electric technology. I think the battery weight was given as 110 kilograms. Now, a MotoGP fuel tank is 22 litres, which is 22 kilograms to make, what, 300 horsepower. And that shows you what you're dealing with here, just in terms of trying to squeeze the energy into a, into a, into a small weight-wise shape in terms of fuel versus batteries. And, and this, as I say, this is a, a big step compared with what's there now, but I think it does just underline that uh, it's going to be a long time before an electric bike can perform at the level of a, of a, of a, of a Grand Prix machine. Um, so we don't know the lap times yet, obviously. We'll have to wait and see for that. At the moment, they're kind of Moto3 pace. 
Um, we'll have to see. As I say, there's no more horsepower for coming from the, the, the batteries. It looks like the torque will be even actually reduced to presumably, again, the weight saving side. Um, but again, the lighter weight should help with the lap time, but it's, it's, it's not going to turn them into uh, competition for MotoGP overnight. So I think it will remain you know, very much a World Cup. It's a, it's a support class and everything else. But, uh, but yeah, those are the figures. It was interesting because it's the first time Ducati have actually you know, given some specs on this bike. So we now know what to, what to expect for next year. I think what Dorna have done is they've covered off a very necessary avenue in development. I think that they've given Ducati an opportunity to look at what current technology will give us in a racing class. And I think all it's done is it's proved that we're not there yet, as you've said, Pete, um, with battery technology. Now, is battery technology going to get superseded by something else down the road? I think it will be. Um, but, you know, we'll wait and see. But the fact is that Dorna have been quite clever in that the, the development of, of battery power is going on sort of peripheral to the main MotoGP classes. It's a World Cup, as Peter has said, um, compared with MotoGP. MotoGP is going down the sustainable fuels route, um, again, which is a favourable avenue. How that all pans out as far as the wider world is concerned, we'll see. I mean, I think we're pretty well committed to electric cars and the like, which I think from a city perspective, if you live in a city, a bunch of electric cars in there has got to be a benefit. If you've ever lived in Bangkok like I have or London like you know we all have at some stage, it's a stinking mess. It always amuses me when people are running around the park in the middle of a city somewhere sucking up mouthfuls of polluted air to um, try and enhance their muscles. You know, they'd be better off taking holiday and running on a beach somewhere. That would work a lot better than uh, in a polluted city. So I think... Electric vehicles in, in, in inner cities is great, great for everybody, great for your kids, great for your environment. But I just, I'm just i not convinced that it's the it's the total way forward. I think we're going to end up with something that you know comes out hydrogen power or whatever it might be. That's I mean, we've got, you know, we had that H24, whatever it was, racing car up the hill the other day, didn't we? A combination of, of, of all sorts of technologies all in one package at the Festival of Speed. It was a hydrogen powered electric you know everything was bolted to it one way or another and maybe we're going to end up with a, a hybrid hybrid at some later stage who knows but it's good that Ducati are, are got it lighter but I think all they've done is they've proved that we're still as you say Pete not quite there yet well if I needed any excuse to get out of running around my local park <laughs> that was it don't want to engulf all the fumes that are surrounding where I live excellent thank you for that Keith uh, you make a valid point though uh, but it will be uh, very fascinating to, to see the progress uh, as we spoke last year you know of Moto E and, and uh, the electric well hydrogen hybrids and how that's all filtering into to what we're seeing in the future of motorsport too um, well what a varied show I think we went everywhere with that one uh, uh, lots to uh, to chat about still. 
a lot of questions that we just haven't got through. But good thing is, we've got a few weeks to get through them all. So, you know, we'll make sure we do and we'll come back and discuss more next time around. In the meantime, though, plenty to check out on Crash.net. All the latest news, analysis, lots of features too on there. So do uh, go and have a look at that. We'll be back with you uh, next week. Uh, Get your questions in, although we've still got a lot to get through. So maybe hold off on that. But we always like hearing from you. Comment section or tweet Instagram or Facebook us. Just search uh, Crash MotoGP. Don't forget to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts and we'll see you right here next week. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.